Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Katz, and welcome to Tuesday's edition of WeRSC.com's Inside the Trojans Huddle, where we tell it like it is. Friends, Inside the Trojans Huddle is a game-like panel discussion that is posted Tuesdays in the offseason and twice during the regular season. The huddle features WeRSC colonists, staff writers, and historians. We first start off with the free game show where we introduce our panel members for this edition of Inside the Trojans Huddle and then give you the latest USC Trojans football news. Now let's meet Tuesday's panelist, a WeRSC columnist who writes WeRSC.com's The Monday Morass, Yay or Nay, and Sunday Takeaways, in addition to regular season football and basketball reports. He also hosts his own podcast show entitled Locked On USC, Mark Culkin. The editor-in-chief of WeRSC.com, columnist, national recruiting guru, and a graduate of USC, Eric McKenney. A former William Jewell College defensive back and WeRSC columnist who writes the popular WeRSC.com column, Musings with Arledge, and his own weekly WeRSC.com video show, Musings with Arledge Solo Edition. He's a graduate of the USC Law School, Chris Arledge. And finally, a WeRSC columnist who writes Fridays the obvious and not so obvious, IMHO Sunday, and is an active member of Football Writers Association of America, your moderator and producer of Inside the Trojan Subtle, Greg Katz. Before we kick off this Tuesday's edition of Inside the Trojan Subtle, here's a recap in USC football news and a tremendous flurry of commitments for the recruiting class of 2014 from this last weekend's impressive list of official visitors. The Trojans received commitments from Modesto, California, Central Catholic, four-star offensive tackle, Manasseh Aititi, 6'5", joining Aititi in the commitment department from Washington High in Atlanta, Georgia, four-star edge Cameron Fountain, 6'5", from Gardena, California, Sarah, four-star cornerback Dakota Fields, 6'2", 180, from Clearwater, Florida, high safety Jarvis Boatwright, Jr., 62175 and from Inglewood, Colorado, Cherry Creek High, three-star offensive lineman Hayden Treader, 68270. And coming on here, if you haven't heard the kickoff times for the opening three games of USC's 2023 season, it's been announced. The three home game kickoffs are 5 p.m. for San Jose State, 3 p.m. for Nevada, and 7:30 p.m. for Stanford. Both San Jose State and Nevada games will be televised on the Pac-12 networks, while the USC-Stanford game will be shown on Fox. A reminder that the recruiting division of WeRSE.com, headed by Scott Schrader and assisted by Marshall Levinson, can be heard during the week for our premium subscribers. And don't forget to watch the Friday WeRSE.com recruiting roundup video show with hosts Dylan Brasher and Scott Schrader. Friends, we are SC's Inside the Trojans Huddle. Greatly appreciates your viewer and listenership. We encourage those of you watching on sites like we, YouTube, click on the red subscriber and like buttons. It's greatly valued and it's free. And you can also listen to Inside the Trojan Huddle on many available podcast sites. And a reminder, WeRSC.com is offering a subscription special. You can get all the WeRSC premium content for three months for just $1. That's right, just $1 or $49.99 for one year. All right, 
We start with the first half, but before we get started, we'd like to begin with an important WeRSC.com announcement. On behalf of WeRSC.com, we quite frankly thought it was a travesty, an outrage, and a disgrace upon learning from WeRSC editor Eric McKennedy that our beloved columnist, Chris Arledge, was not part of the five-member class of inductees into the 2003 William uh, Jewell Class Hall of Fame. Uh, fellow WeRSC.com columnist Mark Culkin simply reacted to this news with a WTF. Personally, I can honestly say that I'm truly mortified. Chris, you've had some time to process this. We know it's not been easy. Your initial reactions are not being named to the William Jewell Athletic Hall of Fame. Well, I guess my reaction's the same as it's been every year for the last 30, 29 years. I mean, I last played there 29 years ago. Um, it seems to me that if you play on a team that wins one game your senior year, <laughs> and, uh, and if, you, if you really don't turn in any impressive performances along the way, that you probably deserve more consideration than I've gotten. But I, you know, I don't know what to do about that, Greg. I just, just put one foot after another and, uh, and keep going. But thank you for bringing this, this controversy to light because I'm sure there are a lot of angry fans out there. Well, you know, we have gotten some emails. Uh, I just can't count past two, but the bottom line, it's the beginning and any way we can help get you inducted, we'll do everything we can on the On3 network to get it done. So with that in mind, let's move on uh, with the first half. Pamela, your thoughts on the flurry of class of 2024 commitments over the weekend by Central California offensive tackle, and I said TT. Uh, Georgia edge rusher Cameron Fountain, Los Angeles corner Dakota Fields, Florida safety Jarvis Boatman, the junior, and excuse me, Boatwright Jr., and Colorado offensive lineman Hayden Treader. Although nothing is official until the December signing period, it should be noted that California offensive tackle Nase Aititi was offered by Florida State, Utah, and Oregon State. Uh, Georgia Ed Rusher, uh, Cameron Fountain, was also offered by Georgia and Tennessee. Uh, LACB Dakota Fields was offered by Oregon. Florida Safety Jarvis Boatwright offered by Florida, heavily recruited by Florida. And Colorado Offensive Lineman Hayden Treader by Oregon, hometown Colorado and Tennessee. Let's get some reaction from the panel. Uh, leading off with Mark uh, Culkin, what would you think of all this? You know, it, it's like the weekend doesn't stop giving. Um, we also found out today that we're going to see Clay Helton in a couple of years visiting the Coliseum. So, whoa, 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 whoa. That's news to me. What, 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 we're going to see Clay Helton? What's going on here? Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, Georgia Southern has been put on USC's future out of conference schedule uh, <laughs> 2025. Anyways, to your question. Sure. Huge. I mean, it, it might not be signing day, but it really felt like a signing day when you see what five public commitments come across and it, it was across the board. It was offensive linemen. It was a really big time um, cornerback from USC's backyard. Uh, it was going into Georgia's backyard and plucking out a four-star defensive rush end um, that was going to bring a lot to the program. You satisfied the mother, which was the first thing. So my initial reaction was, wow. I mean, is, do I have time to stop and eat dinner before another, you know, <laughs> that signal goes up? Just a great day. And that was just off of USC's first June recruiting weekend. There's another one coming up. 
And then there's a bigger one coming up the following weekend. So look, I, I have been on record saying that USC was going to finish with a top 10 recruiting class. Uh, they're going to be top 10 before the end of the month, if maybe before <laughs> the end of the week, if another recruit drops. Um, at this point now, they're shooting for that top five category. So initial reaction, whatever they're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> Eric? The one I want to focus on is is Dakota Fields. Obviously, you can talk about a lot of them, but for me, the Dakota Fields one is far more than just adding a corner to the yeah. class, right? He's he's at Gardena, uh, Sarah. He is a guy that was coveted by Oregon, and it felt early on in that recruitment like he was going to be another one that got away and, and got up to Oregon. Uh, for USC to recruit him as well as they did to solidify that on the visit to get him into the class at this time and apparently very solidly in the class, right? I mean, it's recruiting and especially now, you never have any idea when a recruitment is over and what's going to happen before they're officially in any let's face it even after they're officially in right like there, there's no there's no keeping someone in your program guaranteed long term so what we know right now what he's done right now is a is a huge statement for usc to make to to be able to have to bring him in this because it's still early it's still early in in the recruiting cycle i know a lot of people June is now when a ton of movement happens and commitments, but you still have months and months to go in a lot of these recruitments. But uh, he's a guy who who can bring local standouts with him. He's a guy that if he, in this 2024 class, him signing off on USC, yes, I like the direction of both the program and the defense. That means something to other defensive prospects especially the local ones that usc very much wants to get so again you, you talk about the numbers five of them going out of state all of that I, I think for me it boils down to dakota fields is a is a big time get right now for this usc program for a number of reasons chris yeah, I agree with all that. And I, I would also I would also mention Cameron Fountain. That one that one caught me by surprise. I, I don't, you know, I don't talk to recruits the way some of our uh, guys do. They don't let me here. And um, but you know, pulling a guy out of Georgia like that, uh, you know, you bring him out here and all of a sudden he's he's uh, he's committing I, what was it, ten thousand percent or hundred thousand percent? I don't remember where the decimal was exactly. Uh, is pretty impressive. And I think you saw both with Fountain and with Fields, what USC was selling them is more than just football. They were selling them education. They were selling the network opportunities after football. They were selling them some of the strengths of USC that not every university can sell. And, and it appeared to, you know, it appeared to work with those two guys and their, their families. I mean, um, I, I got the impression after seeing what Cameron Fountain's mom had to say that if he would have gone anywhere else, she would have probably just beat him with a shoe. I mean, she was she was completely sold, which is pretty fantastic. Uh, let me also deal with this Clay Helton thing before we get too far away from it. 
we spent years trying to get him out of the Coliseum and now we're inviting him back. And I understand it's, it's a good cause because we get to thrash him and, and, and see that surprise look on his face when it happens. But isn't this a little bit like the, the following Christmas, if Macaulay Culkin's family would have invited Joe Pesci and Andrew Stern to, to come back for, for Christmas dinner, it just strikes me. You work that hard to get somebody out of the building. You should keep them out of the building. Well, I tell you what, I think that's a good point that you made. Uh, let me just briefly comment on uh, what I saw with this incredible recruiting flurry. Like, like Mark, I kept redoing this this format script. It seemed like every it seemed like every hour I was changing something because it was almost overwhelmingly a tsunami a tsunami of recruits. And I think it's going to continue. Uh, I think the thing that struck me was uh, the idea that Fountain from Georgia, who I always look at who has offered. And when Georgia has offered a kid out of Atlanta, Georgia, which is not all that far from Athens, uh, and he's gonna go to USC, I don't care how strong Georgia is in the state of Georgia, that is gonna get to Kirby Smart. It's, it's already kind of been hinted at by uh, Nick Saban about what SC is capable of doing. But let me uh, underscore that by saying, if USC gets Edric Houston uh, from Georgia, another defensive tackle that has already visited, he's another one that's a five-star recruit. If SC could manage to sign both of them out of Georgia, at the height of Georgia's reign of college football for the moment, it is going to be earth shattering in the Southeast region. Uh, I imagine uh, if uh, everything goes according to form, I guess the SEC will approach the, um, uh, the NCAA and uh, make another Pete Carroll rule saying somehow, how can we keep USC out of the area? Uh, because uh, you know what? Uh, I can just, as Chris mentioned, winning the, the mother, and I think Eric mentioned it, uh, of Fountain, who's all for USC. I can imagine that there's been contact or maybe uh, going to be contact between the um, Fountain family and the uh, Houston family uh, that's in, I think it's Buford, Georgia. And once that snowball starts and you've got some, you know, two people, I mean, it isn't over until December. No matter how excited we can all get, the bottom line is it ain't over. At least the first it ain't over uh, until it's signed in December. That's a long way for people to put a lot of pressure, especially in Georgia. But uh, it is absolutely amazing. If SC can come through this weekend with the locals uh, uh, from St. John Bosco, uh, the, uh, Peyton Woodard, who's also committed to Georgia. Imagine if he all of a sudden commits to USC. It is going to be uh, earth moving, but it, it's it was quite a haul, and boy, if they can keep it up, which kind of leads me into the second uh, hey, part hey, here. Hey, Greg, before yeah. we get there, you had yeah. mentioned Nick Saban's comments, so I'm going to offer a commercial. I talk sure. about Nick Saban's comments in my musings from uh, Arledge Solo Edition this week. It's already up. Look, if you're listening to this, you're already on YouTube. Literally, all you have to do when the show is over is type musings, Arledge, we are SC, and it'll pop up. And no, my commentary there is no better than my commentary on this show. There's just more of it. So if you want to check it out, please do. Good point. Uh, okay, well, we kind of transitioned here to 
is um, is this weekend foreshadowing uh, the recruiting hall for the next couple of, of weeks? What, what's your prediction, Mark? Are, are, is the best yet to come? Yeah, um, and Eric, and, and then you kind of just alluded to it as well earlier. You've got reactions coming from more local defensive prospects who saw what happened over the weekend and on Monday. So when you have, you know, prospects at USC is after like a Marcellus Williams at Bosco and a Peyton Woodyard at Bosco going, Ooh, did you see what happened? Or just giving, you know, one word reactions like, damn, that that's resonating, not just locally, but you have to assume nationally as well. So yeah, it's, uh, it's going to affect what happens in the future. I, I don't think anybody could say anything otherwise. Eric, foreshadow for us. What are we going to see the next couple of weeks? Is it going to be uh, like holy mackerel or what? Yeah, I mean, the, there's a few few weekends left in June, and USC is is pretty loaded um, with guys coming in. I, I think you started to see with this weekend the first sense of um, I, I better get I better get in right. I, be, I better get my spot, and, and I better get there. And, and it won't be that for everybody, right? Some of these, some of these guys, they want to take all their visits. They've got visits scheduled, you know, through the end of the month and they'll be at USC maybe this weekend and then take another trip or they'll want to take visits to games in the fall. Um, however that works out, but you're, you're going to see, yes, by, by the end of June, there's going to be the potential for us. I mean, USC more than doubled its class with what it did this past weekend. I think over the next couple of weeks, we can see where USC's class is now to more than double uh, as, as you go forward over the next maybe two weekends. And I think they have a really good shot with some of these local kids uh, to say, we need you here. If, if you want to come to USC, we need you to help bring other people to USC. I mean, the, the coaching staff, the recruiting department has proven that they can put a weekend on. They can They can do this on their own. But there is something when other recruits and other really well-known recruits buy in and it gives you kind of that, that extra level of confidence. Okay. I know who I'm going there with. I know that other people are seeing what I'm seeing and I can trust it uh, even more. So yeah, I think, I think out of state guys and local in-state guys that there's going to be another pretty significant handful uh, in the, in the coming weeks. Chris, best yet to come? Yeah, probably. I think they're going to have a. I think they're going to have a whole slew of commits over the next few weeks because USC has something great to sell, not only on the football field, but but uh, in the classroom and after you graduate. So I think they'll they'll do very well. I would also comment that you know, you see sometimes on the message boards where people complain that you know why is USC bringing this guy in from you know name state in the south uh because you know we're not going to be able to get this guy well i think we've seen that one usc might get the guy right i mean it just happened this weekend but also number two remember uh, lincoln riley has to recruit for the long term and so if you're recruiting guys who you think are great football players and you you bring in 10 of them and in a year or two one or two of those guys are in the transfer portal uh the time you spent right now is time well spent so uh, yeah, I think they're going to get a lot of commitments. And even on the guys they miss out on, they may not miss out on them forever. 
Yeah, I agree. You know, recruiting is really about momentum, but where I'm really uh, focusing in on the next two weeks is on the defensive end. I know they're going to get players offensively. We, I think we all know that. That's about as safe a bet as you can get. But the building, the restocking, the reloading, the recredibility of uh, defense at USC, obviously Lincoln Riley, that's a high priority, not just because of uh, Alex Grinch, but a high priority for Lincoln Riley to show that he's a balanced coach. So the next two weeks to me are going to be really important, but it's all about momentum. You start getting the players from Southern California to stay in Southern California. And I think this is a key, uh, especially for these two guys coming in from St. John Bosco this weekend. Uh, Vialmu Asa, they say he's leaning towards Notre Dame uh, with Ohio State right there and SC. If they can keep a player like that uh, in Los Angeles, if they can uh, get Woodward to uh, Woodward to uh, decommit from Georgia and come to SC, that's huge. That's huge. So speaking of huge, let's move on here. We're going to turn away from uh, recruiting, and I will have plenty about to say about this hopefully positively next week. But heading into the uh, 2023 Pac-12 season, uh, panel rank the conference coaches 12 to one with 12 being the worst coach in the conference and one being the best. Uh, there have been coaching changes a lot of ways. I've seen a lot of lists, but the one that means the most to me is the one that you're going to provide for us. So we're going to start off with the Pac-12 coaches, 12 through 10, which in other words, we'll start with the worst, may not actually be the worst, but there's a reason why. So Mark, who is your 10, 11, or 12, 11, and 10 choices? in the list of 12 Pac-12 coaches. Yeah, and I, my my list, at least with these three guys, um, is strictly based on the fact of their coaching experience uh, in a Power Power 5 conference. Um, so number 12, I've got Kenny Dillingham. I mean, he's barely older than some of his players, and this is his first time being the guy as a head coach. Uh, right at number 11, I'm going to slide in a uh, coach primetime, Dion. Again, this isn't Jackson State. So he talks and motivates great. We're going to see how that um, translates in the Pac-12. And then number uh, number 10, Troy Taylor, Stanford. Uh, he has more experience than those other two guys, at least being a head coach. But again, he's inheriting a... Uh, what USC was just a few years ago, a dumpster fire. Eric, 12 through 10. Yeah, I, I mean, dumpster fire might be actually giving him more than what he actually has to work with at, at Stanford right now. That That is a tough situation uh, that, that he's walking into. So, so, yeah, Dillingham is 12, no head coaching experience, right? It, you you just don't know. And, and the other guys have, have certainly proven uh, more than, than what he's done. And I have, um, Troy Taylor at 11, just kind of, let's see what happens as, as he goes forward. I think, I think we're not going to know a whole lot about his coaching ability, even after the first year, uh, at Stanford there. And then, uh, 10 for me again, just kind of that, that experience thing. And he'll, he'll probably prove me wrong, but Jake Dickert at Washington state, there, there was so much, kind of hype about Cam Ward coming in and being this, you know, Caleb Williams potential guy. And, and it just kind of didn't 
happened there for for them last year. I think he's another guy that probably has a chance to to move up a little bit if we're doing postseason rankings after the end of the year. But those are those are my bottom three right now. Chris. Yeah, I, I'm in the same camp. I, I actually put uh, Troy Taylor, number 12. Uh, he has some experience at, at lower levels, but he hasn't proven anything. And I think the big difference between him and Kenny Dillingham is that I think Dillingham has more of a story to sell. And he's probably going to and, and he's probably going to recruit better. So I have Taylor 12, Dillingham 10, and I stuck Jake Dickert in as 11. I don't know what to do with them. I mean, they went six and six last year, right? Which at Washington state isn't horrific. It's not like, it's not like I look at Dickert and say, you know, that's Washington state's Clay Helton or, uh, or, you know, Paul Hackett. I don't think that, but I don't think he's going to do much to turn that program around. Uh, and you have to be a pretty good coach to turn that program around. So those are my bottom three. All right. My bottom three is uh, 12 is Dillingham. Uh, number 11 is uh, Troy Taylor. Uh, 10 is uh, prime time from Colorado. I, I just don't think that Deion Sanders has yet proven, uh, although he did at the lower level, but he's at a whole different level. We'll see how he handles it. So let's go to uh, uh, the next uh, grouping, uh, nine, eight, and seven. Uh, Mark? Yeah, uh, this one might make Oregon fans a little mad, but I got Dan Landing at number nine. Um, oh, Look, you can only use a 10th-year college quarterback for so long, and I need to see more defense from a defensive coach who, you know, basically gutted his roster to bring in his own guy. So we'll see what he can do. And I don't even know if uh, he's going to prove anything to me this year. Again, he's using a guy who who's ready to have kids playing quarterback. Um, I got Jed Fish, number eight. He's starting to turn that program around, make it more respectable, at least on offense. I need to see them, what they're capable of, again, on defense. And then I put Justin Wilcox in there, and I could have just as well traded Troy Taylor into the spot. To me, both programs are just, they're, they're the same. One's a private school, one's a public school, and they're both just not doing a whole lot with what they get. Okay, Eric? All right. Uh, I have, I have Wilcox at, what are we starting? Nine. Um, the right. It's, it's always a challenge to play his, his defense, but the fact that he's been there for seemingly a while now and has just never been able to figure out the offensive side of the ball and, and he made some changes and maybe it's this year uh, they did well in the transfer portal. So again, he's a guy that, that maybe moves up after this season um, but the fact that it's it's every year the same thing and you can't find a fix knocks him down uh, a little bit for me. And then Jed Fish at Arizona, I have uh, above him. It's it's going to be tough. I mean, he he found it offensively, but then you lose Dorian Singer and, and you lose a bunch to the transfer portal. So we'll see if they can put sort of two years um, back to back under him. Uh, and then, I, yeah, I like, I like landing down here too. I think that he does a lot of good stuff. I think that Oregon's going to recruit well. I think that the staff he has there is going to recruit well. Mark mentioned it. You needed two wins last year. You needed to beat Oregon State and you really wanted to beat uh, Washington. And I, I think they gave up what they give up like 37 and 30, like 
in, in the upper 30s to both of those. You had a couple, I think, really bad fourth down calls uh, in really key moments here. So uh, again, if that's that pressure, that first year there and, and still early on trying to make a mark, uh, I, I think, again, Oregon, with what they have to offer, is going to get guys there. They're, they're going to get recruits. They're going to get transfers. They're going to put together a good roster. Can you win the games that you need to win? Oregon wasn't one of the teams there uh, at the end of the season last year, and I think they had a lot of pretty good players and, and could have been there potentially in that championship game. All right, Chris. Uh, Jed Fish at number nine for me. Um, he had some good offensive talent last year and, and Arizona did some things offensively. Um, then, you know, not all those guys wanted to stick around. He's not interesting enough for me to talk about anymore. Justin Wilcox, uh, you know what you're going to get from him. You're going to get uh, a defensive unit that plays pretty well with underwhelming talent and you're going to get absolute garbage offensively. Uh, he's been there long enough. You know, that's not going to change. Cal's never going to be better than mediocre with uh, Justin Wilcox. Um, that being said, his, his standing in my eyes has improved dramatically since he was uh, USC's defensive coordinator. So uh, congrats to Justin. Uh, number seven for me is Dan Lanning. I could have gone Lanning or Sanders here. I think they're essentially the same. They offer the same thing. Um, but I think Sanders offers more of it. Lanning, I don't know what kind of defensive coach Lanning is. I know they had incredible defenses at Georgia. I'm not at all convinced that if they would have had another young recruiter as defensive coordinator, that Kirby Smart would have been able to do exactly the same thing. Uh, and so I think we need to see something from Lanning on the defensive side of the ball to even know whether he can coach. I know he can recruit. And, um, and uh, you know, that, that's enough to get him in the top seven, but no further. Okay, my nine, eight, and seven is going to be Wilcox from Cal. All defense, little offense. Uh, he's consistently the same. Uh, eight, I, I put uh, Jake Dickard from Washington State. I think given the situation that he inherited, what he's done, uh, he's made them, he's, or I should say kept them competitive. Uh, so he's about where he should be. Uh, seven, I put Fish from Arizona. I think he's done a good job of making them competitive. Uh, I would be a little alarmed if I'm an Arizona fan about the players that they lost to transfers, especially the ones that came to USC. Uh, that could start a pipeline if it's possible. You never know with the transfer portal, but uh, in order for him to move higher up, he's got to keep the players that he's had. All right, let's look at six, five, and four, Mark. Yeah, so I got a... Uh... At number six, I put Chip Kelly. Look, I think everyone will agree. He he knows offense. He was even able to help, you know, Dorian Thompson Robinson look like a decent college quarterback. And he really knows how to use the run game. So uh, from at least on one side of the ball, Chip Kelly is a middle of the road coach. And that's why I have him at number six. Uh, I look at Jake Dickert at Washington State differently than you guys look at him. Um, that's why I have him number five. He's working at a tough place. And he has no resources to pay for anything that, and that we just found that out recently. So for him to have Washington state in the position they're in and literally getting everything off the dollar rack, you got to, in my opinion, you move them up a little bit. And that's why I have uh, Jonathan Smith coming in at number four. Um, look, last year, 
the Beavers played USC tougher than anybody not named Utah. And he has a system that works. And, you know, again, similar to Washington State, uh, he uses what he has and he does it, he gets the most out of it. So definitely Johnson Smith at number four. All right, Eric, agree. What have you got? Yeah, uh, I have, trying to think where we are right now, six, five, four. Uh, so, so I've got Dion kind of right in the middle at six. I think that he's made some pretty good decisions since he got to Colorado. He obviously has the, the backing of the administration there. He went out, got coaches that can coach. He got a quarterback. He got a big-time skill player. He's added a lot uh, in the transfer portal, and I – that that's how you can build a program right now. I think he's done it. I mean, how do, how do people feel about how he's asked guys to leave the program? I think there's, do you do that the right way? Do you not? Whatever the end result is he's flipping it in a way that he wants to do. And he's paid to put the best roster together. I think uh, Lincoln Riley has done a lot of the same things at USC and, and it's worked out there. So again, can he coach on the field? Those are the questions. But in terms of kind of taking Colorado from what we would have thought about Colorado coming into this year, had he not been there to where I think it kind of becomes a maybe a sneaky game for a lot of programs here, that's coaching. Uh, ahead of him, uh, Chip Kelly, for me, again, I don't know really what he's doing in terms of recruiting, but they go out and get a five-star quarterback. They end up with a pretty good transfer portal class at, at running back and offensive line and a, a bunch of different spots on defense. So somehow he puts almost no effort in and ends up with guys still come, coming to UCLA. Uh, so and, and again, we know kind of what he can do uh, defensively. And then, yeah, at number four, I I want Jonathan Smith to be higher I want him to be in the in the top three um but I think he's he's kind of a three b right now uh for me so so at four Jonathan Smith I think he's always a guy right that like does does more with less and and gets a lot out of a program where you shouldn't really be able to win and, and be super competitive against programs that have a lot more to offer and, and a lot more kind of finances behind him, but takes USC all the way to the end last year and, and beat Oregon in a, just an unbelievable, like on the ground, take it to him and, and finish that game off. So again, he, he's got games seemingly every year where it's like, that was, that was him. That was, that was him coming up with a way to win that game that they shouldn't have won. Chris six, five, four. Oh, I have Dion at six. I think you guys are underrating Dion when you have him down near the bottom of the conference. Here's the thing. He hasn't proven much as a head coach at this level. I agree with that. But Dion has brought excitement to that program and is attracting a caliber of recruit that Colorado hasn't attracted since, what, the McCartney era back in the late 80s? Um, and if you, want, if you want to compete at the higher levels, you have to have better players. None of the guys behind him, Wilcox, Fish, Dicker, I don't care how good these guys are, not a single one of them could have gone to Colorado and had anybody be interested in playing them. That's a huge deal. And, and that's why it seems to me he's, he's like Dan Lanning, except Dion generates more excitement than Dan Lanning. 
Dan Lanning is using uh, Oregon's marketing and, and this, this niche that they've sort of carved out for themselves. Dion is just about him. Uh, now, that will only last so long. At some point, he's going to have to win to keep that going. But it's hard to imagine somebody having done more to get Colorado uh, in on the short list of, of recruits and on ESPN than he's done. Uh, I have, I have Kalen DeBoer, uh, number five, and that's probably lower than most people are going to have him. He had a good, he had a good first year at Washington. He had, he had one good year at Fresno State. I want to see more from him though. He hasn't yet, uh, he hasn't yet, uh, he hasn't yet done what I think the guys ahead of him have done. Um, I have Chip Kelly, number four. Chip Kelly is the laziest recruiter in the history of college football. Chip Kelly is a weirdo. Chip Kelly is also a great offensive football coach, a great offensive football coach. Chip Kelly changed. Chip Kelly did more to change college football over the last 15, 20 years than anybody, right? I mean, all this stuff you see offensively, that was Chip. Everybody was scrambling to catch up with him, and they did, but he still. When it comes to teaching a running game out of this unconventional formation, when it comes to putting uh, athletes in space uh, with mismatches, Chip Kelly's as good as anybody. So uh, despite the fact that he's weird and lazy, and I don't think UCLA will play any defense at all this year, I still have him number four because of his strengths. Okay, my uh, six, five, four, I'm going to, uh, with number six will be Chip Kelly from UCLA. He did change college football like John McKay did with the I formation. Chip Kelly, it's all through high school, uh, college pro. We all would agree with that. Uh, but, you know, he may go a long way. He may actually get even better if, if his freshman quarterback can pan out. Uh, I put Dan Lanning at Oregon number five. I think he's kind of maintained uh, the image of, of Oregon as a recruiting power. Uh, you know, he obviously is going to get defensive recruits. Uh, he seems to pick right guys when it comes to offense. We'll see about his new coordinator. Uh, and I agree with Eric totally. I, Jonathan Smith of Oregon State really belongs uh, in the very elite group. If he wins the conference, uh, you know, he's he's right there. But for me right now, he he would be a 3B but we're not doing that. So he's number four in my book. All right, let's go to three, two, one. Uh, Mark, who's the elite here? So uh, I'm going to give Kalen DeVore the, the third spot. He, I understand he's only been at Washington for a year and he only had that year at Fresno, but he was also the offensive coordinator at Indiana. So I, I think his system offensively works and he took a team that was four and eight Turn them into eleven win teams. You gotta, you gotta give them the credit for that. Um, number two, Kyle Whittingham. He probably deserves the number one spot, but because this is a USC show, uh, Lincoln Riley gets that number one spot. The, the difference between those two is Kyle Whittingham right now. I think number one, he's got more experience. And I, I think if you're giving, looking at the full resume, he knows how to coach a complete, you know, both sides of the ball. Lincoln Riley is offensive savant, guru, quarterback, Heisman maker. If he gets that defensive side of the ball down anywhere close to what Kyle Whittingham can produce at Utah, 
my gosh, could be great. So yeah, Kyle DeBoer, Whittingham, Lincoln Riley. Eric? Yeah, I've got I've got DeBoer three. If Jonathan Smith was three and DeBoer was four, that's fine. I, th- I think they're right there. Uh, and then I honestly, I went back and forth on one, two with Riley and, and Whittingham. And I think that kind of shows, again, it, it would be very easy to just say Riley's the, the number one and Whittingham's number two. I, I think I think that Riley is probably two right now and Whittingham is number one, just because you look back at what Whittingham has been able to do at a program like Utah. And yes, they've had some down years, right? When they first came over to the PAC 12, there were five and seven years and some struggle and Kyle Whittingham. I, I don't know if he's ever even had a, a, even as much as a two loss year. I think Utah's lost maybe three games every, every year he's been there. Uh, and I Riley like a three or a three loss season for Riley is a catastrophe. Right. But when you talk about building the defense and, and putting together a program that can reload every single year, Whittingham just has a longer track record right now. Now, again, the end of the year, USC shows that they can play defense and they roll through this schedule. And Riley is, is number one, I think easily over Whittingham just in one year, based on what you look at what Riley's done, but going into this year and with me saying, I have, I have full control to be able to change this at any point after that USC Utah game this year, I, I think it's okay to, to say Riley's number two right now going into the year in, in the Pac-12. That's how I look at it. Chris, you agree? No, but that's not unreasonable. I, I have Jonathan, Jonathan Smith, number three. Uh, a fantastic football coach who's still young. His best days are ahead of him. We'll see whether his best days are ahead of him at Oregon State. I know that's his alma mater, but that's a guy who, that's a guy who probably should be coaching at a better program. Um, and, and I suspect will at some point. So I have Kyle Whittingham number two. I love Kyle Whittingham. I think he's great. His teams are disciplined. They play, they play tough. Um, he's exactly what a football coach should be. But I have him number two because Kyle Whittingham also loses games he should never lose. And he, and he sometimes loses games he should never lose because he's too rigid. You remember this game a few years ago at the Coliseum where Kyle Whittingham decided he was going to man up on USC's wideouts all game and got torched series after series after series doing it? That was ridiculous. Going into that game, you knew that was that was not a very good USC team. But what they had was about three NFL caliber receivers, right? And a backup quarterback. The only thing I don't want is I don't want I don't want you to give USC's future NFL receivers one-on-ones where the backup quarterback can just throw it up in the air and they can go pluck it out of the sky. He did that for four quarters. Um Kyle Whittingham lost at Florida last year. He should not have lost at Florida last year. Florida was not a very good football team. I know the Swamp is a tough place to play. Uh, And Kyle Whittingham also has not turned his earned reputation as a great coach into better recruiting classes. Um, And I understand Utah is not the easiest place to recruit to, but Kyle Whittingham also regularly loses recruits from Utah to, uh, to other programs, including USC. And at this stage in his career, that shouldn't happen as much as it does. Whittingham is a great coach, but he's number two. Riley still has weaknesses on his resume. We know what those are. Lincoln Riley has to figure out how to put a defense on the field that's not embarrassing. 
We know he's an unbelievable offensive coach. He's a good recruiter. He's an incredible quarterback developer. USC will score 40 plus points a game every year that he's there. This year, they're probably going to score 47 or 48. Um, it's an, he's an unbelievable offensive coach who needs to figure out the defensive side of the ball. I'm putting him at number one because I'm betting that this year they make real progress that direction. And if not, he drops down to number seven next year. <laughs> wow. I have to, Greg, before we get a bunch of Utah fans in here, I, I looked it up after I was on talking. Obviously, Whittingham had the undefeated year at Utah, right, 2008. But since, since coming to the Pac-12, in any full season, yeah, at least three losses. Um, so again, I, I definitely not going to argue with Chris on on if Riley's, you know, ends up one on anybody's list. And, and let's not also overlook the fact that Utah was incredibly lucky against USC last year twice. Took some divine intervention. You get you look you you get to take you get to take your luck right. That's a part that's a part of your record too. But yeah. Kyle Whittingham had no answer for a for a healthy Caleb Williams. I don't think he's going to have one this year either. That means he's going to have to go to the Coliseum and score 47 points. Maybe he'll do it. I don't think so. All right. We'll conclude this with my 3-2-1. Uh, uh, three, three is Caleb DeBoer. Yes, he did 4-8. and eight, Did a great turnaround. Tough coach. He did uh, kind of a Lincoln-Riley uh, type of turnaround. Power to him. So a lot of people pick them to win the Pac-12 this year. Uh, I think the problem they're going to have is they're going to play in the Coliseum. I think if the game was in Seattle, uh, SC would be the underdog. Uh, number two is going to be Lincoln Riley for me. Uh, he's everything you said that he is. But uh, number one for me is Kyle Whittingham. There's no doubt in my mind it's Kyle Whittingham. He has met uh, Lincoln Riley twice, one on a home field advantage, once on a neutral field, yes. Uh, you know, there was an injury to uh, Caleb there in the championship game. I get it. But he coaches both sides of the ball. And uh, luck or no luck, uh, you know, bottom line is he's beaten Riley twice. Riley wins this year and, and, and defeats him in the Coliseum. That's a big step towards number one for me. But, he, but Riley's got to win the conference to be number one. And uh, I don't go that far back. I know that Whittingham got torched with the uh, – playing man-to-man, -man, but I think he learned something there. Uh, but until I see Riley defeat Whittingham, uh, with all due respect, and I'm praying for SC to win, but Whittingham, just on the evidence, in my opinion, he's number one. So with that, let's get to some quick hitters in halftime. Panel, uh, take a look at the kickoff times for the Trojans' first three games, 5 p.m. for San Jose State, 3.30 for Nevada, 7.30 p.m. for Stanford, all Pacific times. Uh, your thoughts on those kickoff times, Chris? Are you happy with them? Uh, the first two are the first two are fine, except for me, they're not fine because I'm I'm going to be in England for both of those games. The good news is that if you're overseas, you can stream online the Pac-12 Network even if you don't have a subscription. Who knew? Um, yeah, well, I I knew because I I did it last year, but <laughs> um, but that means that that means I'm watching one of those games with a 1 p.m. kickoff start time or 1 a.m. I mean kickoff start time, which is not pleasant. Uh, 7.30 games, I hate 7.30 games. That's far too late. I know it's Stanford. I know they're terrible. I know nobody wants them in prime time, but 7.30 is so late that um, that that I, I think USC should never have a game start at that time. Mark? Love them, hate it. Um, 
3.30 and 5 o'clock on those two weekends are like saying, hey, let's just go watch a game in an oven that's been turned up to 500 degrees and have some fun together. <laughs> now, that is so true. Chris, Chris will feel very comfortable if he's over in Europe because it will not be that hot. And, you know, for those of us that are complaining right now, we'll probably be sitting in the press box where it won't be that hot either. Um, as far as the 7.30 kickoff, yeah, not a fan anymore. I used to be when I was a fan and I could tailgate all day long and go home right after the game. But this means that you and I and Eric, Chris, if he's going to do the five things, we're, we're still working at, you know, one, two in the morning. So I'm not a fan of these 7.30 p.m. kickoffs. And that's also my birthday. So I'm another reason not to be a fan of that day. Eric? So if I'm getting this right, Mark wants 8 a.m. kickoffs. It cannot be too hot and it also cannot be too late. So, so I'm not quite sure where to put the games. When there's three games that all get announced at the same time, if all three of them are not at 7.30 p.m. or 8 p.m., that's a win. So for me, that's a win. I'll take one at 7.30 and the other two at that time. Again, if you're talking about heat, they could have been at 12.30. It could have been a one o'clock kick, right? So to, to push them back a little bit, uh, I, I, I'm fine with those times. Now, the 7.30 for Stanford, it would be nice if – that's not repeated all year long, 7.30 games. Uh, but yeah, for, for the first three, that's that's fine. I, I like the initial uh, the initial five o'clock kick. I know we, we talked about what's the best start time and I said five, so I'm certainly not gonna go back and complain about it now. Not like somebody else just did? Is that what you mean? Okay. Uh, I'm gonna say that uh, I like the 5 p.m. kickoff time uh throughout the season would be fine with me uh 330 uh for nevada it's going to be hotter than heck uh, i don't just look at it as the kickoff time it's like what time do you get to the coliseum for fans that are going to tailgate they are going to be absolutely scorched by the time they walk into the coliseum for a 5 p.m or a 330 game and that sun has not gone down yet uh they're going to bake uh that's part of the day it's yeah. not or one o'clock it's 3 30 that's the hottest part of the day that's it brother uh 7 30 p.m again if you're a fan okay you got to say i hope i don't fall asleep on the freeway at 11 o'clock at night for a media person it's probably going to mean a 2 30 uh arrival time at home if we're lucky all right let's move on uh panel who will be the team captains for the 2023 trojans and why chris i think caleb williams has a shot to be one um way to go out <laughs> yeah i know i think justin didich is uh is a team captain so that on the offensive side i think those two are pretty easy uh defensive side i think shane lee's probably a captain this year but it's sort of a weird position to be in because i'm not sure he's going to be a starter um uh but but i think he gets it uh i don't know i don't know what to make of the of the new guys they're going to have so many new guys on defense they're going to play prominent roles maybe one of those guys sneaks in and, and, and gets the nod as captain the way Shane Lee did last year. But I'm going to go with Solomon uh, Tuliapupu, which I, who I think will play a pretty substantial role in the defensive line rotation. 
Uh, and this is just a guy who's been around forever and has worked his butt off, has overcome injury after injury after injury. That's exactly the sort of guy that I would want as, as a captain on my football team. So I don't know if it's going to happen, but I'm rooting for it. All right. Who's, who's it going to be, uh, Mark? Yeah. I, Caleb and, and Justin are no-brainers. I'm going to throw in a kind of a little wild card here on the offensive side of the ball. Keep an eye for Taj Washington. He's got a personality that everybody kind of gravitates to. He's a natural leader. Um, and then on, on the defensive side, you know, Chris mentioned Shane Lee, who might not even be a starter. Caleb Bullock. I'm going to also throw out Bryson Shaw. He, he's just a, a accountability type of guy. And you need that type of person to be a leader on your team. He will never point a finger at anybody but himself. And I love those types of leaders. So I can see him possibly being a team captain as well. Eric, who are the captains going to be? Yeah, kind of boring. Three of the three of the captains from last year are back. And, and it feels like if you're not a captain this year, you're getting it taken away from you. And I don't think any of those guys are, are deserving of, of that feeling. So I, I think... Right. Yes. Unless Caleb Williams opts out, unless he, his his dance card's full and he doesn't have time to get out there for the coin toss before the game, uh, he'll he'll be a guy out there. Uh, Justin Dietrich, uh, you know, he he was the captain as a guard last year. You assume absolutely he's a, a captain as a as a center this year. And then again, Shane Lee just brings so much to kind of the team in that in that captain's role. Uh, I. I think I'd I'd go out and say that he's probably a guy there. Now the the fourth one for me again, if if you have two on offense and two on defense, I'm picking from the defense, and it's it's interesting because you want to go to a different position, right? If Shane Lee is your linebacker and he's a captain, I just Mason Cobb and Eric Gentry are are two names that absolutely jump out uh, to me as potential captains. Again, Cobb has done a lot of what. Shane Lee did last year and and no, the program doesn't need to be sort of pulled up from the floor as much as it did two off seasons ago, but Mason Cobb has shown up and does had does absolutely everything right. And is a guy that, that people look to pretty early on after he got to USC. And then Eric Gentry again is not super outspoken when it comes to the media and, and kind of what you see outside of the team but inside of the team absolutely I think you saw a little bit of that when he got hurt at Utah and like had to be right that old like cane where you're pulling him off the stage because he's trying to stay out there uh, as long as possible on one leg so those two guys stand out but but Shaw and Solo those guys at you know yes um, Christian Roland Wallace maybe as again a, a new guy who takes on kind of that role at, at corner uh, is a name but I don't think this program is scared about putting first year guys transfer guys out there as captains we certainly saw it last year eric thinks the team is going to have 12 captains 12 captains absolutely 12 <laughs> captains if i name them all i'm i can't be wrong right so I bet, just, bet on all the horses let me, see, let me pull up the roster here i got i got 12 more <laughs> All right, I'm going to go with uh, the no-brainers on offense, uh, Caleb Williams and Justin Dietrich. Uh, defensively, I don't see how you take the captain's role away from Shane Lee. It would it'd be bad karma to do so. So that means if you're going to go with two captains on each side, the question is who's the who is the second member of the defense? 
Uh, I think you could uh, say uh, Bullock, you know, possibly. Uh, I really like the Solomon uh, Tuya Pupu uh, comment, you know, obviously kind of a, a fan's, uh, you know, a choice perhaps. And I could see Eric Gentry. So, and, and actually a Cobb would be also someone we'll see. That it'll be a fascinating choice. I can I can guarantee you that. No punter, no punter as captain this year. I thought that well, was. Well, you know that's that's a, that's a time for that's a whole fifteen minute segment right there. That should uh, never happen. Should never <laughs> happen. Oh boy, uh, which Pac-12 team has the worst home and away uh, uniforms? Uh, what's your thoughts on that, Chris? That's easy. It's Oregon. Oregon all day. The only Oregon uniforms that aren't terrible are the dark greens that don't have the um, the wings on. They look like tire marks when they put those things on the shoulder pads. They're ridiculous. Uh, but all of their uniforms that, that aren't the team colors are ridiculous. The ones that have the feathers are ridiculous. And those highlighters are the ugliest uniforms I've ever seen for anything ever. And with, with Oregon State being a close second with that all orange, that year that that year that Oregon had their yellow highlighters and Oregon State had the had the orange head to toe and they were playing against each other in those uniforms. That, that was a crime against the eyes. I've never seen anything I thought was uglier than that. Mark, no, Chris is right. It's Oregon, and it doesn't matter what color they're wearing. It could actually be a team color, and their uniforms are still really hard to look at. But close second, it, it's UCLA. Um, you just don't. Men should not wear that color blue at any point in their life. Even back in the 80s when pastel was, you know, kind of fashionable. You just don't do it. Wow. Eric? Yeah, there's a lot of the Oregon jerseys that I think look kind of put together as they're going on the field. They're kind of trying to put finishing touches on it. But Arizona State, for me, I think is a kind of a sneaky pick. And I think what adidas does with all of their kind of alternates and stuff they they've never they have never hit on a good one for me and it's like it's interesting because it's the closest to usc's right like a little off off cardinal off gold to get to to maroon and and yellow for them but i just they're, 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 they've never put anything together that i've thought yeah that that looks great future usc opponent maryland should automatically be kicked out of the conference for what they put on their uniform I don't even know what that crap is. Uh, I'm, you know, there's the bland uniforms uh, are the ones that I, that I can, I think have the worst for me. So I, I would say it uh, possibly a tie between Arizona and Stanford. Uh, there's just nothing about them that stands out uh, to me. Um, all right. Uh, let's uh, go to the final question here, uh, which I think is kind of unique actually. Uh, if you haven't heard, the LSU Tigers will be wearing air-conditioned helmets for all practices and games in 2023. The helmets have a five-hour span before needing to be charged, recharged, given uh, that the Trojans' first two games of the 2023 season we played in a likely very hot Coliseum. Should the Trojans wear air-conditioned helmets as well, Chris? I had never heard of this until just the other day. It sounds like an amazing idea. If they feel the same, they have the same, they meet the same safety standards and they're the same weight, then yes, absolutely USC should be wearing this. That 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 could make that could make a big difference on a on a hot day with, with guys who are playing a lot of plays. 
Mark? Sure, why not? I mean, let's make this game softer than it's already becoming. Um, I, look, I understand, and I'm kind of on board with what Chris is saying. From a safety perspective, it's an interesting idea. But I, what's next? Making sure that everybody is, you know, being able to change their pants if they're too sweaty during the game. I, football is supposed to be a hot contact physical sport. You shouldn't be comfortable. Eric? Put some perspective into this. Are you going to? Uh, yeah, no, I want them to fix the helmets. I want them to nail the helmets into their heads, right? Like that's, let's go the other way. Yeah, no, if it, if it, they're, they're going to have numbers on all of this, right? If you wear this helmet, here's how much, here's how fast you can run. Here's how much you can move. That's going to say something, right? Someone's going to have those numbers and you're going to be able to see do you play better with that or not? And then, yes, you do whatever you can that helps your football team win games within whatever whatever's legal. So if this works and it helps you play football better, who who would say no, no, no? We're not we're not going to do that. Yes, yes. Okay, I think if you're going to go air conditioned helmets, you might as well do the whole uniform. Uh, I think there should be an air conditioned packet on the side of a player's. Uh, uh, pants uh, and make it cool all the way through. Um, I can just like say, those ice bags that you have to pop, right? And then they, they cool you. the whole the whole right. pad thing made out of those. Yeah, and we'll put a little patch that says NASA approved uh, Houston Space uh, Center uh, or Cape Canaveral in Florida. But I think it's a unique idea. I will say that. So let's head uh, to the to second half here. We're going to do another quick ranking here. Panel now that spring ball is over and it appears that most of the portal transferring has been completed or at least barely uh, functioning at this point. Rank the 2023 regular season schedule of teams beginning uh, with the easiest game at number 12 and the toughest game at number one. Let's get started here. Uh, we're going to go 10, 11 or 12, 11 and 10. Eric, who's uh, who's the easiest at 12? And then give me your 11 and 10. I, I actually think Stanford might might be the easiest based on kind of their scholarship numbers and, and what they lost. But Stanford, Nevada, San Jose State, whatever order you want to put those in, that's, that's 12, 11, 10, the first Chris? three games of the year. Chris? Yeah, the same three teams for me, and I don't even want to talk about any of the three. Mark? Agreed. Time to move forward. I agree. 12, Nevada, 11, San Jose State, 10, Stanford. All right, let's go with nine through seven. Nine, eight, seven, Eric. Yeah, so again, I, I think it's, uh, maybe the, maybe there's some discussion about kind of uh, nine, eight, seven, six, I think. Um, but I'd say uh, the game, well, so I want to say the game at Cal is pretty low, but when you look at kind of where it, Falls, I think it bumps up maybe a couple spots uh, for me there. So I'll say I'll say at Arizona State uh, ends up being uh, nine for me. I think is where we are, and then the home game against Arizona uh, is eight. And then again, I, I think there's there's kind of a, a discussion there. I think that going to Cal maybe is more of a known environment and, and i'll put that uh as seven if you wanted to argue a different game there 
then I'd be fine because that that Cal game is right in the middle of just an absolute gauntlet there at the end of the year. Chris, nine, eight, seven. Uh, nine is Arizona State. Um, eight for me is Colorado. Uh, I think I think Prime is I think Prime is doing some interesting things there, but right now I don't even know that he has close to a complete roster. They just don't have the horses to compete. Um, and then I'll go Arizona. Also, not a game that I think will be particularly close. Uh, but Arizona played USC close last year, and, and Jed Fish will probably do some things offensively to put some points on the board. So that's my uh, 987. Mark, 987. Yeah, I'm going to go uh, Colorado at nine. Uh, I'll go ASU at eight. That's a road game. I just have a feeling that offensively, that might be a high scoring affair. So, and then I can go ahead and I can slot in Arizona at number seven. Uh, again, same reasoning. Uh, I, I have a feeling that Jaden Delora and his wide receivers are going to be able to move the ball a little bit. I'm a little disturbed. I agree with Mark. I sh that shouldn't be happening, but nine will be Colorado. Number eight, ASU. Number seven will be Arizona. All right. Now we get down to the nitty gritty here. Uh, Let's go with uh, six, five, and four, Eric. Colorado six for me. I reserve the right again to drop them to the floor if things look ugly for them early on and they've got some tests uh, coming out of the gate. Uh, I'm going to go. So then, right, then once we get to five, it's this kind of group. I, I'm going to say that the home game against UCLA uh, for me is going to be in there at five. Uh, and then it sounds crazy, right, based on last year, but that home game against Utah, and it kind of is, you know, shake up that top four for me at least. Um, but I'll, I'll say Utah's there without without kind of trying to give anything away that that Utah game's going to be easy or pushover or whatever, but uh, that, that one's four for me. Okay, Chris, six, five, four. Uh, number six, Cal. Cal's not a very good football team, and Memorial Stadium is not a particularly tough place to play. But this is, uh, it's sandwiched in between just these monsters, right? You have at Notre Dame, Utah, then Cal with the other three right ahead of you. That's going to be a much tough, it's going to be a really difficult game for USC to get, to get up for. So they'll win it, but that's that's a challenge. Uh, number five, UCLA. The fact that UCLA is fifth on my list says something about this schedule because there's nothing easy about that game. I think UCLA is going to score a lot of points. And, and we all know, because we've been watching this rivalry for a long time, that crazy things happen in the USC-UCLA game. So the fact that that's five shows just how difficult this, uh, this slate is. Number four, I think, I think these two are interchangeable, but I'm going to go with Washington at number four just because uh, Washington has not yet proven that they are a thorn in USC side, and Utah has more than proven that uh, over the last few years. Okay, Mark? Yeah, I think we're kind of in agreement here. Um, I got Cal at six. It's defensively, that might be a tough game. Justin Wilcox, again, that's his forte. And UCLA, I'm in agreement with everybody. The number five. And it's what Chris just talked about. It's the back half of USC schedule is pretty tough. Uh, so if we're going to slot UCLA in there at number five, knowing it's a rivalry game, uh, that kind of says something. And then number four, I, I'm putting Utah in there. Um, 
they're just not going to be able to carry over what happened last year into Los Angeles, not with what USC is bringing back and what they brought in to improve uh, on the defensive side of the ball. So that's where Utah falls in at number four. All right, I'll go with uh, Cal at number six, UCLA number five, and brutal Utah will be at number four. So let's get to the three toughest games in your opinion. All right, Pat, three, two, and one. Uh, Eric, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, Chris is right, right? Utah, Washington, for me, three, four, however you want to do it. Washington ended up three. Uh, for me, again, first couple of weeks of the season, I think you get a sense if that needs to change or whatever. But right now, that Washington offense uh, coming in, that that's going to be a tough one. Two, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say at Notre Dame, for me, is two. Uh you get kind of the lead up to it and then that's your first probably big game. So I think you get more of a, a run up to that one. The at Oregon one for me is one uh, tough place to play. Oregon is going to be absolutely fired up for that one. And it comes at a spot where you're coming off. Certainly what USC hopes is a, is a home win against Washington that is going to take a lot out of you and then right after that I mean not not that you're looking ahead but then you've got UCLA right after that so again where that falls the fact that it's late in the year in Eugene Autzen Stadium all of that uh, I think is what makes that number one again as the season goes you're going to get a sense right if Oregon drops some games and is out of that Pac-12 race by that time maybe that thing changes a little bit but but based on right now what we have on paper, that's going to be my number one. All right, Chris. Yeah, Utah number three for the reasons we already we already talked about. Utah's Utah historically hasn't played very well in the Coliseum, and and I think they are a different team on the road than they are at home. But they're going to be tough. Cam Rising has been there forever. He's seen everything. He's he's going to be a challenge. Um, Notre Dame is number two, and I think Notre Dame is a better team than Oregon, but. But um, Eric is right. USC has six cupcakes before they play the Irish. And, and so they're probably going to be relatively healthy. They're probably going to be relatively rested. And that's their first big game. And it's a big one. Um, so that's, that's a really tough game. But I think it's number two. And I think USC probably pulls that out. The Oregon game scares me to death. I mean, you look at what USC has had to deal with just to get to play at Autzen against a team I think is probably going to be pretty good. Uh, I don't know that they're I don't know that they're a top five or top ten team, but they're probably not too far away from that. Uh, and it's just going to be an unbelievable atmosphere. And USC has had to deal with Notre Dame, Utah, and Washington in the in the month before that. That's horrible. I, I, winning that game is going to be a major major challenge. All right, Mark, three, two, one. Yeah, three, two, one. Let's go Oregon at three. Uh, USC is going to have under their belt already playing in a really nasty, hostile environment when they travel to South Bend, um, which, you know, both teams could theoretically be top five at that time. So as you just said, Chris, Oregon isn't anticipated to be ranked that high uh, when USC arrives in Eugene. So if USC passes that test in South Bend, they will be able to handle um, Watson. And I think Eric mentioned this on another show before. Oregon is great when they're playing from in the lead. 
but when they fall behind, Autzen turns into the Colosseum. It's just, it's not the same place. And so on that number, uh, moving up to number two, I've got Washington because of what they're capable of doing offensively. And again, it's it's towards the end of the season. USC, hopefully their depth doesn't take the same type of beating it took last year. And that's what bothers me about playing um, teams that are capable of putting up a lot of points. If USC's defense hasn't come around the bend like we hope they do this year, uh, that's why that's what makes this game so difficult. And number one, I'm, I'm surprised at everybody it's not at Notre Dame. This year, again, with everything that's surrounding the game, the rosters, uh, you know, both teams, programs looking at the playoffs, that's going to be USC's toughest game of the season, without a doubt. Well, this is really scary because Mark and I are seeing every the last uh, three or four uh, ranking parts. Uh, three for me will be Washington. Uh, like I said, if the game was at Seattle, uh, it, it may be ranked a little bit higher, perhaps. Number two will be Oregon because I've been to Austin Stadium enough times to know. Uh, and if Bo Nix is on, that's going to be a real challenge. And I don't know how beat up SC will be. But for me, I struggle with Oregon and Notre Dame. But it's got to be Notre Dame at number one. It has to be because SC has got a cakewalk going there. It's going to be a huge jump in physicality and with talent. Um, if Notre Dame is going to have already played Ohio State, if they beat Ohio State, uh, they're going to be undefeated. It's going to be just absolutely a indescribable adjective at Notre Dame Stadium. Uh, even if they do lose, Notre Dame does lose to Ohio State, it's still going to be the toughest game for SC because they're going from like zero to 60 in, in seems like two seconds, and we'll see how they handle it. All right, let's move on. Panel, of the teams we just ranked, which team now becomes the trap game for USC in 2023? Eric? It's Cal. I mean, all right, all of, it's the, that's the, the definition of, I think, uh, a trap game. Um, the games around it, that you think you can take a breather, that they're going to play really good defense. And if USC's offense gets shut down, I mean, we saw Oregon State last year, right? If that, if you stub your toe on offense, it's it's tough to win uh, for USC. So yeah, that one. Chris, you agree? Yeah, it's Cal. It, it, that may be the easiest question to answer that you've ever asked on this show. Mark? I'm not going to disagree because it was. And I'll make it a foursome. It's going to be Cal. All right, uh, we'll end up regular uh, regular play here before we go to overtime and questions. Panel, there's been no announcement for explanation regarding 2023 Salute to Troy, and there hasn't been an induction ceremony for the USC Athletic Hall of Fame since 2018. Although these are two separate topics, what are we to make of both of these important USC traditions having been, having been put on the back burner? If you have any information, Share it for us and the listeners. Eric, what do you know? Not really anything. I mean, the salute to Troy thing is interesting just in, in terms of anything that is financially related to the athletic department anymore with what we know about NIL and where donors want to spend their money and, and players showing up to events and things where are they getting paid or not. I, th I think there's a ton of stuff to figure out with that. I also think, right, what in terms of outside of the USC family, 
what Salute Detroit is most known for was the, the Sark incident there. And so I don't know if trying to figure out a way around kind of calling it that or whatever you're going to do. But I, I think anytime you try to bring all the football players together now that you, you have a whole other conversation about, are they, do you have to pay them for an appearance there? Or where does that money go? And, and that kind of stuff all has to be figured out. The USC hall of fame. Uh, yes, that should be all the time. You, I, I always, I like, right. USC's done some of what Notre Dame always does during the games where they honor teams and players and current teams, past teams, all of that. Every seems like every time out, they've got a whole new team out there. And USC started doing that. I think when, when Pat Hayden took over, they, they really kind of put an effort on that, but no, all USC should be constantly putting people in a hall of fame and, and kind of saluting all that past that that's such a big selling point for USC is that connection to former players, both football and all these other sports. Um, I, I, I'd love to see that uh, every year for them to make a big deal about that. Chris? I agree with everything Eric just said. And I would just add, if we're going to bring Clay back for a game at the Coliseum, can't we bring Sark back for Salute to Troy as a guest speaker? <laughs> <laughs> and Mark, what, what, do you know something about what's going on with Salute to Troy and the, on the Hall of Fame here? I don't, but I, I'm wondering if you've got a bunch of collectives in the background negotiating to sponsor this thing. Because I think Eric touched on a really good point. You've got players now who are like, um, my time's valuable. It costs money. What's it worth to you? So I'm curious to see what's going on behind the scenes with the collectives and Salute to Troy and, and how big of a role that's playing. As far as the Hall of Fame, I was on campus on Sunday uh, for the elite camp, and I was amazed to see how many parents would just take their cell phone and walk up to the Hall of, the Hall of Fame walk and take pictures of those plaques. So the fact that, you know, it's kind of been pushed aside, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, I think that uh, perhaps not having an athletic director to drive this thing uh, is, is going to be uh, an issue. Uh, I'm not so sure what some of the other stuff you said uh, isn't as an issue as well, but they are two big events that uh, seem to be all of a sudden uh, very uh, nondescript. Uh, hopefully they will get their act in order, especially for Salute Detroit. So with that, let's uh, finish up with uh, viewer questions and answers. We'll start off immediately from Romy in Huntington Beach. How many commitments do you think Mr. R has in his back pocket? Uh, would you venture a guess as to say who, who they are? Uh, jump in panel. I'll just start off by saying, I think there's going to be less silent commits uh, based on what I just saw this last weekend. Um, and I think if you want to learn about the names, I would suggest you you read wersc.com uh, on a daily basis at this point. Anybody else have a comment? I think there's probably a couple. I don't, you know, you, you never want to throw names out because there's a reason that they're trying to stay quiet and and that can change things. Um, but yeah, I think from this last weekend, and I think there's probably a few visiting in the coming weeks that want to just, yep, that's what I thought it was. And and that's who I talked to. And this is what I wanted to see. And, and then we're going. So again, th those wouldn't, I guess, technically be silent commitments at this point, but right on that edge of, of, yeah, that that's what I wanted to see. And now I'm in. 
All right. Any other uh, comments on this one? If not, we'll go to uh, from Trojans in the Valley panel. In your opinion, if SC loses a game or two, who will it be to? What is SC's 100% must-win game in the second half of the season? I'll just uh, chime in quickly. The two losses uh, would be Notre Dame and Oregon, both on the road. Uh, what's a must-win in the second half of the season? All of them. You can afford to lose one of those two road games if you win everything else. You, that still gets you in the Pac-12 title game, and a win there still gets you in the playoff. But you can't lose both of them. I mean, you can't lose two games and get in the playoff. So uh, they can drop Notre Dame. <laughs> they can drop Notre Dame or Oregon. I mean, just saying that makes me feel sick to my stomach. But uh, but they can't lose both. I think that's the must-win game is UCLA, right? Like you can't you can't finish the year on a on a loss to UCLA with the way the programs feel right now. But Chris, if you're talking about playoffs, yeah, maybe Oregon's the the more important because the Notre Dame game doesn't affect if you can actually get into the Pac-12 championship game, which you absolutely have to get into that game to be able to win it and then potentially go to the playoffs. So uh the loss to Oregon maybe changes that depending on how everybody else does if you lose one to oregon though you're still in the title game and and you and you may get another shot at oregon um so if it, it, it really you can that's probably the one you can most afford to lose if you're only going to lose one all right question three from b davis 7-11 in irvine california on the message board here on on three people are losing their minds regarding our most recent commits and their national rankings panel how much stock do you put in the national rankings when it comes to high school recruiting uh, comments? Very little. It's what program is recruiting you. That's what matters. I mean, when Alabama signs a three-star, if USC was to sign that same three-star, does it change the fact that he's a three-star? Mark's wrong about all that. It, it, the, the reality is that there is a very strong correlation between highly ranked recruiting classes and winning championships. That doesn't mean that individual players don't slip through the cracks. It doesn't mean that. It just means that if you're in the top five in the recruiting rankings consistently, you're probably going to be in the top five in the final polls consistently. The numbers are clear on that. You just can't. Yeah, you can't put together a great program if all you sign are three-star recruits. Now, you need to sign you need to sign three-star recruits because there are a a good chunk of those where if you can evaluate that guy's going that right you hit that guy on his upward trajectory and he turns into a great college player so again alabama hits on those guys so when you're talking about right the two or the three guys that if if they sign that are three-star guys no there's no there's no complaint about that if the entire class ends up just guys ranked, you know, 950 to 1500, that's not going to be a, a great class because the numbers say that that's not going to be a great class. You're just not going to hit on every one of those guys. Picking and complaining about one three-star guy or two three-star guys, especially at positions where you know he's a multi-year project and he's going to move up. No, that's silly. But at the end of the day, you want to sign more five-star guys than than three-star guys just because the averages say that's that's going to be a better class. Uh, yeah, again, my point is the gauge is what program is recruiting the player. I don't care what the star ranking is. If, you was, if USC is recruiting the same caliber player 
that Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson, a hot team of the decade, um, that's what people should be looking at as far as the comparison. The stars kind of become fun for the fans. Ooh, we won the, the mythical recruiting national championship. I'm looking at who is USC competing for for that player. That's all fair, and that's true. But if you're if you're landing guys that have offers from Georgia and Alabama, and the, all the guys in your class have offers from programs like that, then you're not going to be ranked number 19 in the recruiting rankings. You're just not. And I think three star guys get always oh, only a three star guy. When when the evaluators put a three star on you, the thought is he's a potential all conference guy. Like not they don't give three star rankings out to twenty five thousand high school kids. Like the if if you get a star ranking, you have a chance to make an impact at the next level. So I, I think the idea that like oh he's garbage because he's only three stars is is silly. But again, give me a class of twenty five five star guys and and I'll see what they can do. All right, listen, guys, uh, we have two more questions that I'm going to take and move them to next week's show. They're from Chicago, USC, and from Chris in West Virginia. They're great questions. I want to give it the appropriate time that they can uh, get the proper answers. So uh, Chicago, SC, and Chris in West Virginia, you'll be one-two uh, in next week's uh, uh, huddle. So uh, we appreciate your understanding. A reminder, if you have a question for our panel, go to either the WeRSC message board to click on the thread that pertains to Inside the Trojan Huddle viewer or listener questions. That'll do it for Tuesday's edition of Inside the Trojan Huddle. Till next Tuesday, a big thank you again to our panelists, Mark Culkin, Eric McKinney, Chris Arledge, and a special big thank you to all of you for watching or listening to Inside the Trojan Huddle. Have yourself a great week. And until then, this is your moderator, Greg Katz, reminding you all to fight on, everybody.